News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. This is the kind of week where we are all at some point going to be thinking about having some ice cream because this kind of weather will do that to you. And so that's why it seems particularly fitting that we're going to talk about ice cream this morning, ice cream and history, because we have been eating it for hundreds of years, but just not the flavors that you might associate with ice cream. We have a guest to tell us all about this. It's Dr. Lindsay Middleton, food historian and knowledge exchange associate at the University of Glasgow. Dr. Middleton, thanks so much for being here. Thank you very much for having me on. Good morning. Good morning. How long have we been enjoying ice cream for? So it's difficult to know when exactly ice cream was invented. Um, There are records showing that sort of flavoured ice and snow were eaten in Roman times. So we know that for as far back as that, we've been using snow and ice as a way of sort of preparing desserts. It wouldn't have been ice cream as we know it today. That comes much later probably in the 15th and 16th century when it was discovered in Italy that if you add salt to ice, it reduces the temperature much lower, making it easy to freeze things. And at that point, custards or flavoured water bases could have been mixed with in containers surrounded by salt and ice, and that churning action would have produced ice cream. So from the sort of 15th, 16th century onwards, we were eating ice cream as we would probably recognise it today. Was it, though, even early ice cream, was it sweet? I mean, what kind of flavours are we talking about here? There are a huge variety of flavours and um, not all sweet. So I think that's one of the main differences between ice cream as we understand it today, which is sort of typically a sweet thing that we eat as a dessert. Um But in history, it would have been, you know, you get things like Parmesan cheese ice cream, cucumber ice cream, vegetables would have been made into savoury sorbets. I've seen um, 19th century recipes for um, ice creams that had anchovies in them and egg yolks and Worcestershire sauce. So lots of sort of very savoury things. Um, And saying that, there were also a big variety of sweet flavours too. So a huge range of things. I was going to say none of that sounded good. That did not sound good. No, (laughs) a lot of it was probably not very appetizing to the modern palate. Okay, so what were some of the most unusual ones, though, that you have heard of in your research? Um, I think the cheese-flavored ones strike me as particularly unusual. Oh, boy. Yeah, not not cheese in a sort of sweet ricotta-esque way, but like parmesan salty um some of them i've seen have gelatin in them or or beef so there would have been a very savory undertone and then um spices which today we wouldn't perhaps think of putting in ice cream things like saffron or um yes turmeric chili powder spices like that would have been used to make ice cream as flavorful as possible but in an unusual manner were there factors, though, that led, like you talked about how that changed in Italy, you know, around 50, in the 1500s. Is that what led mm. to it becoming more and more popular then? Yes. Yeah, so it was really when um, globalization started occurring, and particularly in the sort of late 18th and early 19th century, Italian immigrants to the UK and North America took the uh, method of of making ice cream with them. And the the reason it became linked to sort of leisure and recreation was because often these vendors would be making ice cream to sell on the street. So they would have stalls. And it wasn't it wouldn't have been ice cream in a cone or a tub, but they would sell it in a glass on a glass sort of cone shaped glass, which was called a lick. And what you would do is you would get your scoop of ice cream served on this glass object. You would then lick it off and you would give it back to the vendor to be reused. So it was around places where people would be bustling around shops or fairs or if when in the Victorian period when people went to the seaside often on holidays, that would be when they would enjoy ice cream from these street vendors. That is so interesting then. So obviously that evolved into something like the ice cream cone, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
yes, the ice cream cone is again very difficult to um, pin the invention of it on. Some people credit that to the Victorian sort of authority on ice cream, Agnes Marshall. But then there have been records of ice cream cones earlier. But yes, it was from that sort of penny lick idea, um, which is kind of horrifying to think of now. It really is gross. Yeah. <laughs> it is. The way you I was trying not to say I thought it sounded gross, but it did. <laughs> no, I can't imagine they were sort of sanitizing them very well in between. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I was thinking too. When when did it become something that we enjoyed as a treat or kind of leisure and recreation? Again, I think it's that sort of 19th century, so in the 1800s, certainly in Britain and similarly in North America, people started having a bit more disposable income. So that's when you get the rise of the sort of holiday industry and and all of a sudden the middle classes could afford to, to go probably just within Britain, but could afford to go on holidays. Um, and that would be when they would enjoy ice cream and similarly innovations in the way that you could produce ice cream meant it was fairly easy to buy an ice cream maker that you could use in your home so ice cream and ice desserts then became something that you would serve as part of a dinner party you could buy all these elaborate molds and, and make them really beautiful but that sort of becomes accessible in the 19th century and that's also because the way that we could store and buy ice changed. So prior to the 1800s, ice had to be gathered from rivers and then it could only really be stored in ice houses and it was only wealthy people with lots of land who had ice houses. Whereas with increasing travel across the sea, um, ice could be brought in from Scandinavia to Britain from Scandinavia or even from North America, and it was far more accessible, so it became cheaper. Right. Was there? Do you see any continuity of flavors, like in your research, flavors that were that are still with us, perhaps that have stood the test of time? Yes, I mean certainly Agnes Marshall, who I mentioned earlier, she has two wonderful cookbooks, and a lot of the flavors are things that you wouldn't think twice of, particularly the sort of fruit-based ones. So there's strawberry ice cream, cherry ice cream. She's also making things like chocolate ice cream. Um, So the sort of key flavors that we still enjoy, I think very much do have historical roots. What you don't see are the sort of more um, processed flavors. So you wouldn't, for example, have a bubblegum flavored ice cream in the Victorian period. But certainly anything that was derived from a natural ingredient was could be made into an ice cream. So there are things there that I think people wouldn't think twice about eating today. Well, I know I would be today thinking about having some ice cream. So Dr. Middleton, thank you for your time. Thank you very much. That's Dr. Lindsay Middleton, a food historian and knowledge exchange associate at the University of Glasgow, talking about the history of ice cream. I mean, everybody has their favorite flavor. I have always been partial to really good, like strawberry ice cream, you know, like, like, we're talking good. It has to have like little chunks of strawberry in it. That's the good stuff. Not just because it's pink and kind of tastes like strawberry, but actual made with strawberry ice cream. That is the best. Can't go wrong with that. This is Mornings with Simi. There's a growing consensus that something needs to be done to fix our rental situation. But the question is what? And that's what we're going to talk to Scott Schantz about this morning. Good morning, Scott. Hi, how are you? I'm good. Thank you. So, you know, we know we heard as well in the last week that the what the average rental is now like $3,000 yeah. a month, which is just ridiculous. But like, what do you do to fix it? Yeah. And a lot of people have a lot of ideas. But um, I think first, a big part of this is identifying what the problem is and what is driving those those high prices. And obviously, it's a very complicated issue. But one of the things is short-term rentals, you know, like Airbnb and uh, VRBO, right. those type of things. Anybody that I've talked to that has a rental property is interested in doing that, mainly because it makes more money. You know, if you rent your place for $200 a night versus, you know, $1,500 a month, month. you make more money that way. But surprisingly, and I think this is, this is kind of the issue is that there are parts of what's going on here that make it easier and more convenient to, to own a short-term rental than to own 
a, a rental unit. I, I think there's, you're right. There's a lot going on here. A lot of it also has to do with we, we don't have enough hotel rooms in this city. Huge. Trying to get a hotel room is incredibly expensive. And we've known that for years and we have to fix that. And so the market is there for expensive short-term rentals. You can make Big so time. much money. Yeah. And also I think... Ten, for for homeowners like the the tenant the landlords they they would prefer something with less commitment and and this is exactly the issue so one of the things that uh, an ABC counselor Lenny Zhu he's proposed this this a letter that he wrote to the province has been posted on Reddit and he addresses this to David Eby Ravi Kalon and Ann Kang and uh, what he's suggesting is some changing to changes to the way that we regulate. Tenancy, the residential tenancy board as to how not, he's not recommending changes to short term rentals. I mean, there's a lot of that in there. But the thing that really caught me as interesting is he's suggesting stronger protections for landlords, you know, because normally we think that we need more protections for for the tenants. And we do have strong protection for tenants here in B.C. But the big issue that everybody's talking about is and this, we saw this a lot during covid is the residential tenancy board is so bogged down right now with evictions that if you tr- if say you have a tenant that you've had for a year and you they're they're bad tenants and you and want they're not paying exactly and you want to evict them you it's so hard and they can challenge you in court and tie it up for months and during those months they can just not pay and then say you win, they can also challenge that in the Supreme Court as well and just care, drag this thing out for months, like months and months and months without paying. Who wants Who wants that? We know how horrible and stressful it is to be a landlord and have bad tenants. And that's why I think a lot of people are saying, I'm not going to do that. I'll just do the short-term rental thing because they stay for a week and then they're gone. I've heard this from neighbors who have made the decision to no longer rent to um, to rent out whatever their basement suite or whatever the case is. And that's one of the reasons why is that they're so afraid that they will end up with a tenant that they can't get rid of or it'll be a problem and they just, they don't want to deal with the hassle. Yeah. And yet on the other hand, you also know that tenants will tell you that there's terrible landlords and like they're, tr- and they're getting kicked out and then the landlords are just hiking up the rent. And yeah, there's those stories too, but I don't know how you fix it so that both of these things can be addressed and people are okay with it. You're right. It is a difficult thing. And, you know, typically there's this attitude towards landlords. Uh, Oh, you have money, you're property owner. That's why you can be a landlord. You don't know what it's like to to rent. But as a result of that, because the residential tenancy uh, board is so bogged down and the wait times are so long. It is so hard to evict. And I mean, I I totally get that. I I guess... Oh, sorry. I just wanted to say, I think I was thinking more about this. I think what would matter here is that if you protect the tenants who pay their rent yes, and don't protect the tenants who don't pay their rent, that that might be the, the line. Yeah. Like, I think there's nothing about this that's going to affect good tenants. Like, if you're a good tenant, right. then no, nothing about this is, is, going, is going to hurt you. And the idea is hopefully that some of these short-term rentals or people like your neighbors who have just decided, you know what, we're not going to have uh, tenants anymore. It's just too stressful. If this alleviates some of that pressure and increases the long-term rental stock in the city, that's a good thing. You have to incentivize landlords to make those suites available, right? Like you just have to. Like, yes, you can crack down on some of the short-term rental rules because obviously they are being flouted. But you have to address the concerns about how do you protect people to make sure that the rent gets paid. Yes, absolutely. And and make make those places available. I mean, it's it's not going to solve the whole thing. I just found it interesting because we are really, really quick to, to fault landlords and protect tenants at all costs. But we also need to take to some consideration for the people who are, in, off, in many cases, putting the homes that they live in up for rent, units in the homes that they live in. There should be some protections for those people as well so that they are mm-hmm. willing to continually put these places up for rent. This is a good question, and I think we should ask people about Scott. Thank Absolutely. You. Do you think the city needs more protection for, as we were trying to put it, like for landlords, for good tenants too, right? Like if you're a tenant who pays your rent, then yes, absolutely, you should have protections. But what do you do about the tenants who don't and they get bogged, bogged down and then the landlord is stuck? Doesn't that need protection as well? What do you think? This is Mornings with Simi. Time now on this Monday morning for us to check in with Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun. Good morning, Vaughn. And good morning, Simi. All right, let's talk about this BC Hydro news because, boy, this is not going over well with people. 
Well, it's not going over well with people who have electric vehicles, and BC Hydro has announced they're going to raise uh, the cost of uh, using one of their electric charging stations by about 15%. It's on a sliding scale depending on the kind of charging you're using, but it works out to about 15%. And they have to get that approved by the Independent BC Utilities Commission, which is conducting a review. And BCUC, as it always does, is inviting public response. And of course, the response is coming from people who have electric vehicles who don't want to pay 15% more. I get it. But I would say as well, Simi, looking at the math on this thing and on the pitches that are being made for people to get electric vehicles, this is not really a financial hardship. Going to an electric vehicle is still going to save you an awful lot of money. Right. And that's the thing. People still have to crunch the numbers, right, for themselves. Yeah. I think it's the idea. What what bothers people is that you encouraged us to do this. You tell yeah. us this is the future. And then as soon as we start doing it, now you're going to ding us for more money. Well, there's some truth to that. You know, uh, B.C. government, federal government, they make an awful lot of money off gas taxes. And for a while, people have been saying, well, what? What's going to happen to that revenue stream if people actually do switch to electric vehicles? Government's going to have to find the money somewhere else. Well, you know government, right? (laughs) They're going to cut spending? No, they're going to find the money somewhere else. So I think that's what we're looking at in the long term. But not to go too deeply into the math, I'm indebted to the Victoria Electrical Vehicle Association, uh, Owners Association, for a couple of mathematic points. So One of the people that's quoted in the Canadian press story on this complaining about the rise in the cost of charging an electric vehicle is saying that when he switched to a total EV from a gas-powered vehicle, he's saving $350 a month on fuel. So that's a good big saving, and that's a lot of money spread over a year. Well, The Victoria Electric Vehicle Association, Simi, in persuading people to go to electric vehicles is saying there's a myth that, you know, charging rates make it expensive to own an electrical vehicle. They say, no, existing BC Hydro rate will cost you about $1.80 for a charge up that will allow you to drive 100 kilometers. And... Average Canadian driving distance over a year is 15,000 kilometers. So at existing hydro rates, you'll be paying hmm, around $300 a year to charge your vehicle. Well, this guy in Nanaimo saved $350 a month by switching to an electric vehicle. So Sydney, even if they raise the rates right. of hydro by 15%, <laughs> an EV is a heck of a deal. There are other economic issues with electric vehicles, including, you know, how much it costs to buy one up front and all that. And I get that concern. But really, uh, seriously, mm-hmm. this is not a hardship, what BC Hydro is proposing. I also, it's interesting you point that out, too, because I know that there's a number of people, and there's more and more of this, is people who have bought EVs but don't have charging at home. Yes. And I've That's noticed a really this a lot. I've noticed this a lot because then this, and I think the driver that you're talking about also was relying on public chargers because didn't have charging at home. And I think you have to, I think you have to start thinking about seriously too, where am I going to charge this thing? Uh, that's true. And of course, you can go to private sites. There are private sites, but they charge and Hydro is saying they charge more. So Hydro is saying all it's trying to do is equalize. But the problem of charging at home is a really good one because, <clears throat> I mean, when you hear from people, okay, if, if you're doing it in your own home, well, you pay for the installation of the charger and there is an incentive to do that. The big problem, as I understand it, is with the age of your strata. If you live in a strata, adding a charging station to a strata can be very expensive because, first of all, everybody in the strata is going to want to use it eventually if you put it into the underground parking lot. Second of all, uh, I've heard from people who've tried to do that. They say it's an old building. Uh, They're going to have to upgrade the electrical carrying capacity of the building in order to put in a a charging station. (laughs) And then all their neighbors are going to want to use it as well. So obviously the strata council is going to have to go for it. Strata Council looks at the cost. How many of the people in the strata actually want to charge an EV? Not many right now. So the economics don't work there. Now, the government did, Simi, offer 
a program, $14 million for two years to pay for the cost of converting stratas. That money's run out. And there's a question now as to whether or not the government will do it again and provide more incentive to do it. But yeah, so you're right, Simi. What happens is people don't have their own charging station at home. So they go to the public station if there happens to be one in their town or their community. And Hydro is now saying, we're going to get you to pay a bit more for that so we can expand our charging network around British Columbia. That's another hardship for EV owners. It's relatively easy to charge up in Vancouver, Victoria, Metro Vancouver, Southern Vancouver Island. You got to drive a long way and run out of electricity, some people in the north and the interior. Vaughn, there's going to be a lot more discussion about the whole BC Hydro EV thing. But also this morning, we're going to talk about the comparison when we talk about wildfires, what we see happening in Maui versus what we see happening here in BC. Yeah, I mean, I think British Columbians obviously uh, transfixed by the horror of what happened in Maui. A lot of British Columbians go to Maui, go to Hawaii and know the community that was destroyed. And there's the death toll, which is horrific and the cost of rebuilding. What the count now of buildings destroyed is over 2000. The one thing, oh, and the and the other thing you think about is there are news reports now, and you're seeing it that, that Hawaii was warned that yes. was, was vulnerable, and you need to deal with this. The water systems, the hydro systems, elect, I mean the electrical systems, the water systems, the firefighting ability, all needed to be upgraded. And uh, hmm, you know, we can be accused of that here in British Columbia too. We're learning whether we're learning from the fallout from floods or fires. But also, uh, can I one, just say, can one, I just jump yeah, in here? Ahead. Yeah, about the warning system as well. Like I always knew that Hawaii had a pretty good warning system for tsunamis, right? Because it's a, it's yes. a siren system, and I've been there when it's tested before. Yeah. So you know they have it. And they never activated it. Instead, they used the emergency alert system, the tech system that we're familiar with here. But well, the power was already out for people, so they didn't get those messages. Yeah, no, I, th- that's right. And you're right about the tsunami warning. The Tsunami Museum in Hilo is well worth a visit. If it is. going to the Big Island because they've actually had two tsunamis within living memory. So, yes, that's all true. And we can look at some other place and say, what are we doing? But here's one that just jumped out at me because of recent coverage. So it's been over two years now since Lytton was destroyed by fire. And we've heard repeated promises from federal and provincial government. We've got your back. We're going to be there. You're going to be rebuilding. A year ago, the provincial government, well, rebuilding was going to be well underway by this time. Lytton is still struggling. Uh, a community of 300 people, the businesses there, Simi, can't get federal government relief from CERB. Ottawa's making them repay their CERB loans. They don't have a business. Yeah. They can't get the financing to build it. So I guess one question I asked looking at Maui, and I think we'll be monitoring and we should monitor over time passes, is do we really think that in Maui two years from now, nothing will have been done? I I don't think that's how the American system works. There may be more litigation there, but I will be very surprised if the rebuilding isn't well underway two years from now. And yet here we are in British Columbia. Lytton is still to a great degree stalled. And, you know, some of the so many of the same issues will yeah. watching the rebuilding that will happen in Maui, too. Uh, there are a lot of indigenous artifacts, a lot of indigenous history yeah. that went up in flames in Maui. Lots of concerns about making sure local Hawaiians, indigenous Hawaiians, people who live on Maui are supported ahead of big business and corporate. Like all of that is going to apply oh, yeah. to what we talk about here in B.C., too. Yeah, that's true. But I think the Americans also have a reputation for getting on with it. Yes. Uh, with getting on with it. And that community is so central to the tourist industry in Hawaii that, I mean, part of the problem with Lytton is it's it's a little tiny community that is enormously important to the people who live there. But has it really commanded the attention of BC's political parties of the B.C. government and the federal government, their opposition members who've repeatedly raised this federally and provincially. I give them credit for trying to keep the story alive. But 
you know, if that were a community represented in parliament by a government member and in the provincial legislature by a government member, it's not. Would we have still be talking two years later about how, oh, well, you know, the permitting is complex and, oh, we have environmental review. Oh, and we have to clean up the site and all that. All, all that's true. Yeah. But if it had a powerful government using its regulations to push, 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 don't you think we would be rebuilding Lytton by now and yeah. would have started at least a year ago? Also, just let people do it. If they want to yeah. do it and rebuild, just let them start. It's, there are some people who've, who've gone back, right? I mean, yeah. every now and then one of our, you know, and our reporters go up there and try to cover this and they say, oh, this is interesting. Uh, so-and-so just said to hell with it and, and opened a business or went back, built a house, right? It, and, yeah. and, you know, it, it's true that there's been some of that, but still it, it, you can see all the bureaucratic obstacles and regulations and all that. And, you know, you read it all down. It's, complicated but okay it's complicated but <clears throat> this is there are people who left Lytton and who still haven't gone back to Lytton they've moved on with their lives one of the open questions about Lytton is will it ever come back I mean it moved out and you lived on a relative's or friend's couch for a few weeks after the fire and then after a few months realized that nothing is happening you may have moved somewhere else permanently, got a job somewhere else, and, you know, you might visit Lytton someday, go back. But again, Simi, you go back to two years ago, John Horgan, we've got your back. We're going to build a world-class safe community. When? That's it's, a very good question. It, we haven't gotten there yet, and I think with greater political will, um, we would have. So, okay, we saw Grand Prairie in Alberta. They rebuilt a lot faster than we did here in British Columbia. I think we're going to be looking at Maui and see how the Americans are doing. And again, British Columbians are going to want to go back to Maui. So they're going to be able to see it eventually. Yeah. And I will be surprised if two years from now they're looking at nothing but rubble and empty lots. Yeah, I don't think they will be. All right. Thank you for that, Vaughn. Bye-bye, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. So we've been checking in on the situation in Maui this morning, and we know there is still such a long way to go there. Right now, the death toll is almost at 100, between 93 and 96. That's the official death toll, but they do expect that to increase potentially dramatically. There's still so many people missing, and you may have heard in the news as well, they're saying cadaver dogs have only managed to search about 3% of the area right now. It is it is very slow going. Getting resources to Maui to help is also part of the big challenge. And I know that we all think the same thing too. Like, how did this happen so quickly? How is it that the water uh, wasn't available? The fire hydrants, some of them ran dry. How is it that the emergency alarm system, the actual warning system that they could send, like for a tsunami, didn't go off? How did the power failure happen so quickly? So there are these questions. So we thought, let's talk more about this too. Like, what role did the geography and the land play in this too? So joining us now to talk about this is Ev Gedelov, who's an associate professor of geography and Environment and Geomatics at the University of Guelph. Zeb, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, happy to do it. So have you been studying you've, this you've already? This up. You've, you've oh. given me a, so much to talk about here. Well, that's good. That I'm not an expert at. And uh, what I realized as, as we, we talk about these fires, nobody is an expert at it because Hawaii does not historically receive you know wildfires of this kind. There's probably one or two experts in the world and they're phones are probably ringing off the hook. I would imagine. So, but right now, I guess it's an opportunity, I don't want to say opportunity, but it is a chance then for us to study from this, right? And, and not try to repeat some of the mistakes that must have happened here. So are you looking at the geography of the landscape there and wondering, like, how did this happen? Well, I mean, in some ways, I hate the expression, a perfect storm. In some ways, this was a perfect storm. And in some ways, it was an accident waiting to happen. So Hawaii, uh, the vegetation there is just not adapted to wildfire. There are no natural um, igni sources of ignition. They just don't get lightning. Um, and people will point to lava flows. But there hasn't been a, a volcanic eruption in Maui in, I think, four to 600 years. You know, only the big island is, is getting lava right, right. now. So, so Maui any is ignitions unique. that happen... Well, uh, all of all of the older islands in that in that chain of that we you know of Hawaii um, 
don't get lava anymore and they don't get lightning. So the vegetation is just not adapted and the, and the people aren't prepared for it. Like probably if it was a, a hurricane, um, which would have definitely contributed to the, the spread of the fire in the, in the current case. But if it was a hurricane, they know what to do. They're practiced, they're prepared, the systems are in place. People know what numbers to press and, you know, get that message out. A fire is just something that they're not used to. Um, and the reason that the current fires are so severe is mostly, I mean, it's, it's mostly caused by the introduction of exotic grasses that burn hot and fast. And some of them were accidental introductions, um, but a lot of them were brought in as, as hay crops for, for agriculture. And that's what's, that's what's burning. And that's what caused the, the incredibly rapid spread of this fire. Okay. And so you talked about it being a perfect storm then. Is that just some of the, what are some of the other factors? Uh, so climate change is definitely um, something that we should be looking to. Hawaii isn't getting a whole lot hotter under climate change scenarios, but it's get, definitely getting a lot drier. So these, you know, we're preconditioning the vegetation there to burn. Hurricane Dora, which missed Hawaii but brought very strong winds, um, helped the fire spread happen. Um, and then, yeah, just we're sort of building in the wrong places. So um, because we're not ex- because Hawaii was not expecting wildfire to be something they had to worry about. They're ready for hurricanes. They're ready for a tsunami. They were not ready for wildfire. Yeah, I guess that's that's very true. They're obviously ready for a tsunami because we hear about it all the time. If you've been there, you know, you see the signs everywhere. They talk about that. They don't talk a lot about wildfire. So what can they do? Like, what do you think they need to keep in mind as they look towards rebuilding here? Well, I'm, I'm sure that smarter people than me are looking at this problem. Um, but uh, and the same sorts of things that we're, that we're doing in British Columbia um, in terms of making the landscape more fire resilient. Um, so building codes can be changed. Um, planning can be changed to accommodate the fact that wildfires are likely to happen. Um, I mean, we could say the same thing about Southern California. If you look at parts of Los Angeles, where there are whole neighborhoods that only have one road in and one road out. You know, that's not something that... That, that we that we want in a fire prone landscape, right? So are there are lessons here for us too. I mean, British Columbia is probably better prepared than most of the world for wildfire, um, but we've seen that um, you know we're less prepared for floods. Um, as we sort of look to the future, I guess the the lesson would be to imagine a different suite of disturbance agents, a different suite of hazards. Than you know that our than our parents or our grandparents grew up with. Climate change is 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 upon us, and we need to be ready. Right. So if they're when they talk about replanting and re you know rebuilding in Maui, a lot of attention being um, put on those grasslands that you mentioned there too, right? Yes. So when they redo that, they sh- I guess they should be saying like, no, we have to make sure that what we plant is kind of native Hawaiian species. I mean, certainly that would help. So ohia is the main the main tree species in Hawaii. It's actually not wildfire adapted, but it also doesn't burn very readily. Um, what I'm hearing is that a lot of what currently burned was abandoned uh, sugarcane plantations. And so when the sugarcane dies off, it comes back with these exotic grasses that, that burn very readily and grow very quickly. Um, they're talking about uh, guinea grass growing up to 15 centimeters a day when it's hot and wet. Um, and unfortunately, it's been hot and dry recently. Yeah. Well, these are painful lessons to have to learn. Uh, Zeb, thank you so much for your time this morning. Oh, thanks for caring. That is Gav Gedeloff, who's an associate professor of geography, environment and geomatics at the University of Guelph. And these are very painful lessons to have to learn about Hawaii and, and what works and what doesn't work and what they're used to. And yeah, wildfires is not something that they've had to deal with a lot, but now they're going to spend some time learning as well. And we don't even know the extent of the damage yet, right? We'll continue to keep you updated on that situation. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, they told us, buy EV, go EV. It's good to transition away from fossil fuels. So guess what? So many people did. And now BC Hydro says, 
you know, we need to raise our EV charging rates. And boy, you can bet that people have thoughts about that. And our Scott Chance is with us to talk more about that. This was inevitable, Scott. Well, this, that's what I was going to start by start off with is what did you think was going to happen? I mean, exactly. like, yes, for a period of time there, there was going to be this, hey, it feels like we're outside of the system and everyone else is paying for gas while we just drive around for free. Yes, that was how it was for a while. But as electric cars become more commonplace and eventually take over, yeah, they're going to start billing us for all of this electricity. I mean, the power comes from somewhere. It has to be paid for to install all these charges, too, to make it more convenient for you. Yeah, absolutely. And Vaughn talked about this earlier, and he hit the nail right on the head that, you know, this... This has been coming. It's here now. There's a, there's a lot that we have to sort of adjust and, you know, change is, change is good, but it's not always easy. And, you know, we're going to have to figure some of this stuff out as we go along. Like one of the issues is the strata thing and we'll get to that and stuff. But first, the, the idea is that BC Hydro wants to raise the rates 15% at their charging stations. So to give you kind of a, a sort of blanket understanding here. There's five or six different charging stations, companies in the province that you can charge with. BC Hydro is one of them, and then there's a whole bunch of private ones. So BC Hydro started out by giving theirs away for free. You know, you could just park there and plug in for as and long as you want. That's how they get you, Scott. That's you got how they it. get you. You got it. But of course, that led to people just parking there and plugging their cars in and just just leaving them there, you know, and and that's uh, so I, I have a great clip here from a global news report. This is uh, Kelly Carmichael. He's from the Vancouver Electric Vehicle Association. Listen to what he has to say about this. In B.C., it's been a very sweet deal for them when it was free because it was free for a long time that we couldn't get access to the chargers because people were using it instead of home charging because why not? It's free. With everything going up lately, it's, this is a, it's a hard pill to swallow. I mean, he's, he's absolutely right. Why not? It's free. Right. But I, I would never use, I have a plug-in hybrid, so okay. I don't need to charge it all the time. Just sometimes I have like 50 kilometers of, of range. Great. So back yeah. and forth to work every day. No problem. I do sure. that on electric. And a couple of times I did in the beginning use the chargers here at Pacific Center Mall because there's quite a few of them, yep. but they're private chargers. They're not public chargers. So you pay with an app, right? You pay, yeah, with an app. And, um, and I can't readily go down there and move my car when it's done. Fair enough. So, you know, it was going to be four hours. It was going to be plugged in there before I could go down when the show was over. And I tell you, it was not necessarily cheap. And I did that once or twice and I thought, I'm not going to keep charging here. This is this is ridiculous. So now I only charge at home. I was going to say, so do you just plug into a regular outlet or do you have a charger installed? We have a charger installed. We had a charger installed as a result of that. See, and this is the thing. I had some neighbors who did this as well and they thought, oh, we'll just, we'll do, there's charging stations everywhere well, now. That, we'll just sort of thought, cruise yeah. around and we'll, we'll plug in sort of wherever we can. And they realized that, you know, this is, it's just not sustainable because of this exact thing. Everyone is getting electric cars. Everyone needs to charge. So BC Hydro is putting this in to like move people off. Private networks are trying to move people off. Like you can't just stop at a gas station and sit there all day. Other people need to fuel up too. Right. We have to charge for this. But I find it funny that people are uh, getting up in arms about 15%. You know, this 15% think, well, increase. 15% and everything else, right? Like just one more increase and and people just don't want to pay more. If they were getting it for cheap before, you know how people are. They yes. just don't want to pay more. Well, to your point, like that's how they get you, right? It's like, here's a, here's a taste for free. They get the hook in. But of course, it's still significantly cheaper then gas. I mean, this this is um, Raf Boya. He's an EV driver, and I think his comments uh, speak for many, many EV drivers. I still do see it as a benefit, regardless of how much EV charging costs, because it still is significantly lower than gas price. Like way lower, yes. way lower. And of course, I think that I think it's good that we're using the financial angle to incentivize people and help people get on board with the EV thing. But that's not the only reason that we should be doing this. We should also remember that this is how we save our planet. You know? uh, and also, you're right. There, there's a lot of people who purchased an EV without fully thinking through the charging process. For instance, there's someone on my street who also has one. And I noticed, actually, there's two people on my street because 
when I walk the dogs, I see this. They run the cable, they run the yeah. uh, extension cable across the, the sidewalk, yeah. and which is illegal. You yes. can't do that because that's a tripping hazard for people. But I know in one case, they've duct taped it down. They have a cover for it. Sure. So they have a cover, so that's fine. The other person has not. Um, but I thought, whoa, you didn't think about that before you bought the vehicle is where are you going to charge it? Yeah, and th- I, don't, I know that a lot of people are considering this and... I think that this is a step. That's kind of my general I, I used to I did a lot of car review stuff. I'm a car guy, I love cars, my whole family works in the car industry. I think that we are on our way towards electrification and electric vehicles being the mainstream. This is a step. We're moving in that direction. I for my family, I would be comfortable with an electric vehicle and a plug in hybrid like you have. I think that's a really great balance for it's now. A good, it's a good compromise for we're, now, yeah. We're building out the infrastructure and one of the things that BC Hydro has said is like it takes money for us to do it. So where's the money come from? We got to charge you for charging. And it's still way cheaper than gas. Right. There's a lot of people, though, who also have bought and they live in a condo. And there are many stratas who are saying, listen, we're not installing more chargers. I know I know a couple where this happened to them. They had a car, they moved into this condo, but their strata is saying, well, we, we're maxed out on chargers. We can't, you can't have one in yeah. your parking stall. Yeah. And again, this is one of the growing pains. That's something that we're going to have to look at. I know a lot of new condo builds now are putting in these chargers because they also know that that's going to be a selling feature going forward. People are going to want these things built into their condos. But to, to the people that are trying to figure this out, I think, yeah. Absolutely. If you want your condo and your your condo place to be a part of, you know, the the city and the system going forward, you're going to have to update it just like we update other things like sprinklers and roofs and all that type of stuff. This is just part of that. You know, we got to get on board. Okay, there you go. Scott's saying got to get on board. I'm sure people will have thoughts on that. Scott, thank you. No problem. That is our Scott Chant. So if you're an EV driver, are you okay with this? So BC Hydro has applied to raise the rates at the BC Hydro, so the public charging facilities, by 15%. Some EV drivers are not happy with that. But, you know, if you're one of the other BC Hydro customers who don't use that, you think, well, yeah, why not? They should have to pay, right, if they're using the system. What do you think? Simi at cknw.com. We'll talk more about that. This is Mornings with Simi. So maybe you're out walking in your neighborhood and you're like, oh, great, brown lawn after brown lawn, which is what you would expect to see. But then all of a sudden you stop at one house because you see this beautiful kind of jewel tone green lawn. And you think, are my neighbors like really egregiously violating the watering restrictions that we've got going on? Or, or are they doing something else? Maybe they're doing this something else. And we're going to find out more about that right now with the help of Nicole Lundy, who's the CEO of Lawn Lift Canada. Nicole, thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Good morning. Good morning. What is this something else that people are trying with their lawns if they really, really want them to be green? Yeah, so uh, it's it's a little bit shocking when people first hear about it. But what we actually offer is an eco-friendly lawn painting service. So you're actually painting your brown lawn green. Okay. Well, they might have put a sign up, right? Because they don't want people to think <laughs> that they're flouting the water restrictions. Yeah. We've, you know, we've actually had instances in the past where like cities have gone to people's houses to issue fines and they've been shocked to find out that the grass is actually painted. So it's super natural looking. And the best thing about it is it's uh, do it yourself and it's really affordable oh. and the results are instant. So you can have green grass in minutes without turning on a sprinkler. Okay, but why do this though? Why? Like, can't we just get used to brown lawns? Why do we need it to be green? (laughs) I mean, a lot of people ask that question, but surprisingly, there are so many people who care about curb appeal. So they want the green grass. It's, you know, green envy. You want to one-up your neighbor. Um, You've got guys out in the middle of the night breaking the law, literally watering their lawns. So this gives them another um, option to stay green without breaking the law, basically. <laughs> right. Now, has this been in use for a long time? Because I wonder if, like, it, it, do we really need it? Do pe- or do people just like it for the aesthetic yeah. reasons? No, absolutely. I mean, it's been around for over 20 years. It was developed in California for the same reasons uh, with the drought. So they came up with lawn painting because, you know, a lot of the people in affluent neighborhoods, people selling their homes and they just want that curb appeal because the brown grass doesn't look good in photos when you're listing your house, whatever. 
um, and we purchased the Canadian rights probably 10 years ago. And yeah, we're busier than ever. So it was definitely it tough, lots of people. Was it tough convincing people, though, in the beginning that this was a good idea? Yeah, I mean, people, you know, people laugh at first. There's a lot of hate. There's a lot of laughter. There's a lot of no way that's fake or that doesn't exist or who would paint their lawn. And then they see it and they're like, hmm. <laughs> and the orders, you know, right. just keep rolling in. And yeah, I've got contractors offering the service because they have nothing to do when the, they can't mow the lawn because the grass is dead. So it, it employs people and yeah, keeps people happy. I guess that's the thing too, with lawn mowing, if people are letting their lawns go brown, then a lot of landscapers who make money mowing people's lawns are probably not making as much money right now. Yeah, exactly. So I'm working with a lot of landscapers across the country, actually, and some locally that, you know, are basically picking this up as a side hustle to earn some extra income when they can't do the regular lawn maintenance. So it's it's great. Right. Is this also kind of like getting artificial turf? I've noticed a lot more homes getting artificial turf too, but I know there's there's drainage issues with that, isn't there? Yeah, artificial turf is completely different. It's a super expensive and super labor intensive. So you're ripping out your entire uh, lawn to put in artificial turf um, and it's thousands and thousands of dollars. So ours is a very a temporary instant solution. You want green grass, you don't want to water it dormant lawn is not dead so basically this is just strictly curb appeal you can continue regular maintenance on top and then your lawn will come back green in the fall so basically it's a short-term visual fix because how long does it last and then if it rains is it is it gone no it's permanent so it'll dry in this heat wave it'll dry almost instantly we tell people kind of wait an hour or two before you let your you know pets and kids walk on it but it's completely safe and non-toxic and um, yeah it's permanent until it grows out or you mow it off okay this is really interesting <laughs> I, I just people are I thought like embracing the brown lawn thing people would be like no I'm gonna let it go brown but there are some people I guess just still absolutely married to the idea of the green lawn yeah definitely and like I said it's dog owners it's people that accidentally burn their lawn with weed killer and they want to fix the patches and then it's people that do want the the curb appeal, the street appeal. I mean, the real estate industry is huge because when you're selling your home, curb appeal is the number one thing they say. So painting your lawn is, it's a first impression and you don't have to turn on a sprinkler. So you're saving water and, you know, looking good at the same time. (laughs) Kind of like dyeing your hair. (laughs) That's a good comparison. (laughs) Nicole, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. That's Nicole Lundy. Nicole's the CEO of Lawn Live Canada. Now, they are very busy right now because we were thinking that a lot of landscapers probably aren't as busy right now. For instance, if you have people who come by and mow your lawn at this time of year, they're probably not coming as often anyway, right? Because that slows down. But they might not be coming at all or you might not need them at all. Uh, And that's the real like cutback on the hours that landscapers are probably billing for right now because lawns don't need mowing if they are burned and brown to a crisp and don't need to be cut because they're not growing. And so what are all of those landscapers doing? This is Mornings with Simi. It's a great Monday morning to talk about the BC Lions, of course. And so for that, we have Coach Rick Campbell, head coach of the Lions, joining us. Good morning, Coach. Good morning. How are you today? I'm good, thank you. I always look forward to talking to you when the Lions have had a big win. Yeah, it's always more fun to win than lose. So it <laughs> yes. was good. It was good to it was good to bounce back, especially at home. Right. Okay. So a couple things. Thirty-seven nine win over Calgary must have felt good for you to have Vernon Adams Jr. back too. Yeah, he was really good during the week, and he he had a really good week of practice, and it translated into the game. And he was uh, he was really accurate with his throws. Um, it was good to see him buy time with his feet. Whenever we got in trouble, he could buy time, and um, he had a, he had a really good week, and he was a good leader for us all week as well. And so, what was I know that last week we talked about making sure the team had like bounced back. Was that important for you, like keeping their mind on that this week? Yeah, I mean, our whole body of work has been really good this year, and we've had two setbacks, but we've been able to to bounce back. We always talk about the problem isn't getting knocked down, it's it's getting back up. So I'm proud they bounced back. I know they were looking forward to the game, and we had played a couple of games on the road, and I know our guys were really looking forward to playing at home again in front of the home fans. So it all worked out, and that's a good thing. Yeah, and let's talk about the defense here too, because obviously this is a game where the defense bounced back too. 
Yeah, they we're we're really tough when we don't give up big big plays and um and they play together as a group and so that was the two things they did is they played for 60 minutes they hustled they play hard and then they don't give up big plays and when we do that we make it really tough on people and it's always impressive to me in the CFL when you don't allow a touchdown and so um yeah they've done it again I don't know how many times they've done it this year but they've done it several times and that's obviously uh, pretty impressive uh just one allowed in four home games this season that's really impressive Let's keep playing at home then. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> now yeah. you've got it, but unfortunately, the next one is in Saskatchewan, isn't it? Yeah, it's another big one, as you always hear me talk yes, about the West team. So, <laughs> so we got the tiebreaker on Calgary last week, which means if we were tied in the standings, we beat them out, and it's going to be the same case this week with Saskatchewan. So, another big one. Whereas if we can find a way to beat these guys, we'll hold the tiebreaker on them and be ahead of them in the standings. So, another big game on Sunday. Okay, and I also wanted to ask you about the Nathan Rourke thing as well, because just seeing him do so well in that game, you know, playing for Jacksonville, and you guys put it up on the scoreboard there at BC Place, the crowd reaction was great, the players' reaction was great. Yeah, we're all rooting for him. You know, he's he's such a neat guy, and um, I would never bet against him. He he won't back down from any challenge, and whenever he gets an opportunity down there, um, he's going to make the most of it. And so it's not surprising, but it's it's fun to see, and I'm glad glad more people get to see him. Obviously, we miss him, but uh, we're all rooting rooting him on, and uh, I you know look forward to seeing what he does. I also thought that that says a lot about the type of group you have right now, Coach, because you've talked about that before, right? great chemistry, good group you've got. Yeah. But for them to look and be so happy about a former teammate, I thought says a lot about them. Yeah, I, I think it does too. We're really making an effort to try to surround ourselves with, uh, obviously we need talent, but also we want quality people in our building. And we want the best for everyone, whether it's with the BC Lions or, or if they go on to other things, that's fine too. So now our, our players, like I said, they're, they're, we have a lot of good people and uh, we'll all be rooting him on. All right. Well, we look forward to cheering you guys on in the next game in Saskatchewan. So good luck. All right. Have a good day. You too. That is Coach Rick Campbell, head coach of the BC Lions, talking about the great weekend they had. 37-9 win over Calgary. The return of Vernon Adams Jr. looked great. Uh, So the team did really well. They are off to play Sunday in Saskatchewan. And I don't know if you've seen it, but the the video that we were talking about there is that they're on the field, the players are, and they're all looking up at the scoreboard because the BC Lions staff were putting up the highlights of Nathan Work playing for the Jacksonville Jaguars and just, just having this great pass, great connecting for the touchdown and it was a real highlight real touchdown and so the crowd loved it the players loved it and Nathan Work himself loved it sending out a tweet of appreciation uh, to the BC Lions and their staff for making that happen and, and he can feel that he is being cheered on which is really nice to see this is mornings with Simi three thousand dollars a month That is the average request from a Vancouver landlord for a one-bedroom apartment. That's based on the latest monthly data from rentals.ca. That is up significantly from a year ago. Same time last year, a 16% increase year over year. So the average asking price, just to be totally specific, is $3,013. That's not the case for all of BC. I mean, it's still pretty high. When you average out the whole province, it's more like $1,949 per month for a one-bedroom apartment, uh, but still very, very high. And in Vancouver, astronomical. So according to this new data, a two-bedroom unit in Vancouver is about $4,000 a month, almost $4,000 a month. Like that's a crazy amount of money. What is going on out there? So we're going to be looking at this from a couple of different perspectives. The short-term you know, rental market is having a huge impact here. And we'll start with talking about that. And the, the hotel shortages we'll discuss a little bit later in the show. But right now, David Hutchinson is with us, realtor and owner of David Hutchinson Personal Real Estate Corporation. Uh, David, thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you very much. Is this a, a big topic of conversation even in the real estate industry, though? Because that's, that's an astronomical amount of money for a one-bedroom apartment. Yeah, it's a massive amount of money, and it just seems to keep on going up. So before, there was this FOMO, fear of missing out of buying something, and now it's almost a fear of missing out of renting something. If you don't get in, the prices are just going to keep on going up, so it's quite an issue. So when real estate agents are marketing homes, the amount of revenue that they can get from rental suites, how much of a factor does that play in? 
Well, typically that would be like for commercial real estate. You'd, have, you'd sell a commercial building and, and those rental rates would determine price quite often. Not so much in residential because you rent out your, your basement suite or whatever and, and the rent kind of is a mortgage helper as it's been called before. But now we're starting to see these residential homes being marketed with quite high rents and, and it's mostly coming from this Airbnb thing. Right. And is that used to kind of justify the asking price of some of these homes? Well, for residential, the rental price, um, as opposed to commercial, shouldn't really determine the price of the property because the price of the property is the assessed value of the land and and the improvements. But I do see realtors marketing the rental uh, price uh, rate that they're getting for this property and trying to push up the price of the home. I've seen that too as well. And I guess, is that what's happening in the market right now, David? I wonder, because I know in my neighborhood, there's been a bunch of listings that have been sitting on the market and sitting on the market. And I've, the prices, the list prices, the asking prices are now coming down. What are you seeing? Yeah, that's, that's uh, exactly what's happening. I think a lot, of, and it's a little bit with these rentals too. The, they're asking, these are asking prices for these rentals. And I don't know where to get the information, probably from rental sites and Craigslist and things like that. Whether they're getting this big $3,000 a month, I don't know. And I don't know what kind of tenant you're going to get. You'd have to get a very good tenant because 30% of your income should go towards that rent. And a lot of management companies want to see income verification. So you got to make about $130,000 a year to rent a one bedroom. And I could see a lot of people just jumping into one of these rentals just for short term and saying, look, we could afford it for six months and we'll figure it out after that. And then you have a tenant that can't pay the rent and that could be an issue. Right. That, that becomes a huge issue, right? Which is why we, I think we're talking about that later on, about why people are turning to short-term rental to generate that income. What are people, what are you hearing then from the industry right now about in terms of, you know, sales and prices? Yeah. I mean, you go, I went to an open house yesterday and it was busy, you know, and, and, but I called the realtor later, any offers? No, no offers. So it looks like a lot of people are just shopping around. And as you mentioned earlier, there there's a lot of hopeful pricing out there. And now these prices uh, are starting to uh, getting reduced. And so do you think that's what's going to happen then? Like heading into the fall is usually a busy, busy season, right? Yeah, we had a really busy June and things were going crazy. And of course, um, everybody was kind of surprised because you never know what's going to happen in this Vancouver real estate market. And the Bank of Canada popped up the rates a bit. And then we just kind of skidded into this uh, slow kind of July, August where things are just sitting around. And we just don't know what's going to happen in the fall. But uh, these indications are we're not seeing any any big uh, jump, that's for sure. Okay, so what do you what do you say to sellers who perhaps are still pricing or thinking that they're going to get a price for their homes that just isn't realistic anymore? Uh, well, you have to price it sharply. You, you know, you have to make it presentable because you you kind of got one swing at this thing. They they hit the ball out of the park, and you don't want to to lose that opportunity. So it's definitely you have to be a sharp price point if you want to sell your home. Right. All right. Well, David, thank you so much for your time on that this morning. Yeah, my pleasure. That's David Hutchinson. David is a realtor and owner of David Hutchinson Personal Real Estate Corporation. So I don't know if you've noticed that in your neighborhood. I I have noticed it in mine is, you know, you check out what's for sale. Same couple of houses have been for sale for quite some time now. I would say all summer long. And one of the, actually both of the houses that that I'm thinking of have seen price reductions at least twice uh, keep in mind, the original prices that they had them up for, I thought were outrageously high. I think they were probably hoping or thinking that, you know, they would ca- cash in on some of the, the boom that had happened in the past. And I think those days are maybe gone for now with these high interest rates. And so twice now we've seen price reductions come into play, but still those houses are sitting there. And part of the reason why that prices are so high right now for rentals is because people are not renting to long-term tenants. They are deciding to go the short-term rental market instead, whether it's Airbnb, you know, Verbo, whatever the case may be. And we're talking about that coming up too, because the city of Vancouver is kind of musing out loud about perhaps doing something about that. Some of the ABC councillors on social media have saying, well, maybe this is something, you know, we can address. If you have a basement suite in your home and you have the choice to rent it out to a long-term tenant or on the short-term rental market, 
you have to weigh the pros and cons of that. For the short-term rental market, it's more work for you if you're going to be doing the cleaning yourself and marketing it and doing all that. Like that is probably more immediate work. However, it's more flexible for you. You don't have a long-term commitment that you have to worry about or deal with. And on the plus side of things, you think it's probably more money for you. You can definitely generate more income. But for long-term tenants, you also, you don't have to as much maintenance to deal with. You know, you're knowing that you get a good tenant in there. It's, you know, somebody that you can trust. And that's where the challenge comes in. Finding that good long-term tenant. And people feel like, you know what, it's too much of a risk. I'm just going to go the short-term route. And that's what we are seeing in the city of Vancouver right now is a lot of people choosing to go the short-term rental market route. And so the city of Vancouver is saying, well, what can we do about this? Well, one of the reasons why people are generating so much income in the short-term rental market is that the city just does not have enough hotel rooms. And listen, we have talked about this on the show for years, that when it comes to capacity, we're not just maxed out, we are above and beyond. Like, Take a look at what some hotels are charging in the city of Vancouver, downtown Vancouver, outrageously expensive. So... Short-term rentals are very attractive and very profitable for houses out there. This is Mornings with Simi. And as ironic, Vancouver's gotten as expensive as New York City, hasn't it? And one of the reasons why short-term rentals in Vancouver are so profitable and hence more attractive to landlords over long-term rentals is price. And the reason why price is so good for short-term rentals is because Vancouver has a lack of hotel rooms. So not enough hotel rooms, people need places places to stay. And there you can see what happens. It's like a domino effect. So how do we fix this hotel room part? Because that's one aspect to this that can help us, you know, fix this rental situation too. So joining us now is ABC Vancouver City Councilor Sarah Kirby-Young. Thanks for being here. Good morning, Simi. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How short are we when it comes to hotel rooms in this city? Uh, we are very short. In fact, we've been going in the opposite direction. We've seen a downward uh, trajectory in hotel rooms. Um, we are projected to have demand exceed supply by 2026, so three years from now. And since we hosted the Olympics in 2010, we've actually lost 1,500 hotel rooms, which is crazy when you think about it. Um, our tourism industry has continued to grow, but we are losing hotel rooms um, and we will continue to lose more. We lost another 550 during the pandemic um, when a number of those rooms were taken out and converted uh, for social housing uses. And it has a knock-on effect, as you said, um, because it impacts the local housing market and, and the attractiveness of short-term rental, but also our small businesses who need those customers. And do you think that is having a big impact when it comes to short-term rentals versus long-term rentals? Um, I definitely think that it's related. Uh, you see it um, in terms of uh, permitting. So think about the housing analogy. People sometimes will do unsanctioned permitting uh, because it takes too long to get a permit at City Hall. It's the same thing if there's an attractive market out there and um, people can't find a hotel room. It's a pretty attractive option to short-term rent your place. And so that becomes a real challenge um, in terms of people that are working around the rules. And um, the rates they can command are huge. We already have the most expensive hotel rooms in the country. What are we doing then to fix the hotel problem? So I'm bringing a motion forward that uh, we will hear at the first council sessions back in September uh, to actually take this seriously and set targets. Uh, for the 10,000 hotel rooms that we are predicted to be short in the coming generation, just like we set targets for housing and measure it. The policies we've had in the past have really been guidelines, but they haven't been enabling policies that allow outright zoning or um, uh, the ability to fast track through a rezoning process, allow them in other geographic areas of the city, um, potentially allow more density for hotels. I think there's a number of uh, options that we can use to bring things forward, creative and different uses. I think we'll see some really interesting proposals coming forward for new hotels in the coming weeks. But um, a, a big part of it is taking it seriously because I think the tourism industry was always an undersung hero um, and it contributes hugely to our local economy. And it was sort of like, yeah, but that's not as important as housing. And I think now what we're trying to show people is that it's actually really linked to the health of our housing market if we don't have enough hotel supply. It's all connected, right? Like if you're making it so attractive for landlords to have short-term rentals, that's what's going to happen. And so if it is all connected, then are there other things that we can do to incentivize landlords going the long-term rental route? Yeah, I, I absolutely think that uh, that we can. I think number one is, is you know, providing enough homes for people. And so 
Um, it's it's not just about renting out homes. Like we need enough purpose-built rental in the city, and we need to move that forward more quickly. Uh, we saw things like the loss of uh, the waiver of GST federally on rental housing supply, a number of things that have made it challenging to build rental. Um, and so a lot of that is around expediting some of that housing and getting it through the system more quickly. That's a huge part of it because people want that security of tenure. They don't necessarily want to be renting in someone's house, and we don't want to rely on stock in terms of that being incre- incremental. It's great to have somebody renting out a basement suite or a duplex or a laneway, um, but that's just part of the mix. We need to put a lot of solutions on the table. And what about the idea that, you know, for landlords, it's a choice between not wanting to have a long-term rental because they have perhaps like trust issues with that or they they feel they don't have enough protection? Yeah, I, I think I think absolutely it's a balance there. And, and that may be why sometimes short-term rental is more attractive. But uh, again, I could go back to the fact that when you're creating so much pressure, the reason uh, I think that people are feeling so insecure in their housing um, is because we're not providing a lot of that secure ongoing stock, just like uh, we're not providing enough hotel supply. So it's really about getting serious, I think, and dealing with the root causes of the issues. When you're in a situation where you're actually focused just purely on enforcement around short-term rental, you're already dealing with a symptom of the problem. You're not dealing with the root cause, which is let's get enough homes built for people and enough rental homes and let's get enough hotel rooms for people that are coming to visit the city and support our local economy. Are we even doing enough enforcement when it comes to the short-term rental licensing? Uh, The city of Vancouver does an incredible amount of enforcement. There's a couple thousand cases that are looked at every year. Um, But again, I think we've got a perfect storm of um, sort of pressure points um, that are leading people to perhaps step outside of the rules where you're only supposed to short-term rent your primary residence. Um, and that's what we see happening. But um, I'd rather sort of focus on dealing with the issue. Enforcement's important. We'll continue to do it. Uh, we know the province is going to come out with some regulations in the fall um, that will strengthen the tools that municipalities have for enforcement. And so we're looking forward to having those. Um, but again, I want to make sure that we've got enough stock of hotel rooms and enough rental homes for people that they can have a secure um, reliable place to live that they don't have to worry about being kicked out um, by a landlord because it's not a purpose-built rental. Right. Like when you talk about hotel rooms, though, I mean, you can approve a new hotel, but like that still be years away from being used. So is there a more immediate solution, perhaps? Uh, I think there's several. Uh, as I mentioned, I think there's some creative uses coming forward. We're going to hear some exciting proposals about hotels, I think, in September. Um, another one is that seeing the conversion of office. Um, as experts are saying that uh, we're seeing some of the office folks not renewing their leases because during the pandemic, life changed and people are going back to work, but not at the same numbers. And they're not going back full time necessarily five days a week. So you've got a couple of proposals. There's one recently on Broad Street with a medical building that was purchased recently. Um, and that's going to be converted from office use to hotel. And I think you're going to see more projects coming forward like that. Oh, that would be interesting. Well, I look forward to hearing about it. Thanks for your time. No worries. Have a great day. You too. That's Sarah Kirby Young, ABC Vancouver City Councilor, talking about the the hotel crunch that we have in Vancouver. We are at fewer hotel rooms than we had, um, you know, during the Olympics. We're fewer hotel rooms than we had even before the pandemic. We lost something like five hundred hotel rooms, as she pointed out, during the pandemic, and haven't put those back. And yeah, that crunch in hotel rooms is one of the reasons why short term rentals are so attractive to landlords out there. The other reason why is what Jeremy or refers to as a trust issue. And I think there's some merit to this as well. Jeremy says he's in the hotel business and he says, I get to converse with many people in my industry and those with both short and long-term rental units. And he said, by far more and more homeowners are withdrawing from offering their homes for long-term rental. And the reason he says is almost universally a trust issue. He believes that the landlord-tenant legislation makes it too difficult. He calls it virtually impossible to deal with a bad tenant. And so often the costs for damage, non-payment of rent and refusal to vacate are very substantial. He said the short-term rentals are certainly lots of work and many owners sporadically put their property in and out of offering that service in their properties. Uh, But he said you can in some markets make a substantial income that way. And I know that there are people in Vancouver who would much rather make that income off the short-term rental situation rather than long-term. So how do we fix that? Where is that balance? How do we repair that trust issue, as Jeremy said, that would help us get more in the market and perhaps have landlords more willing to offer long-term rentals?